everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Ken, why don't you introduce our special guest for this week? All right, with me today is my good friend and getting to be longtime friend, uh, Tony Kim, who is a pastor in Bakersfield, California, but he's a man of many talents beyond that, and he also serves as the Vice President of Harvest International Ministries. Uh, we had Che on, on the show um, a few weeks back. Uh, Tony works directly with Che on, and so I thought it would be kind of fun to get not just the C, uh, CEO's view or in the military, the CO's view, commanding officer, but also the XO's view, the executive officer. So, Tony, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us, and it's taken... It's been like giving birth to an elephant to get this to happen, but here we are finally doing it. I know it's a, uh, we serve a God of miracles, Ken. That's uh, right. It's it's great to be on with you, Ken and Grant, and uh, I'm looking forward to our time together. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to the questions. I uh, why don't you start out just by introducing yourself to our listeners? Tell us a bit about your background, how you came to faith, um, just kind of the early years of Tony Kimdom. All right. Well, I'm glad our episode is going to be six hours long because uh, <laughs> that gives us plenty of time. So <laughs> um, just to give you a little brief history, uh, my wife and I, Jessica, have been married for 24 years now. We have three children, uh, not so much children, but our eldest, Elian, is 22. Jonathan's 19. Kayla is 15. And uh, it's so grateful that they all love Jesus. They're all serving the Lord. And uh, which is on this pursuit of getting to know Jesus more. But going into my personal history, um, you know, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, but, but going back, it makes it a little more interesting. Um, you know, my father is a Hiroshima bomb survivor. He was born in Hiroshima and he was taken um, under the Japanese concentration occupation, and his family was taken to Japan in Hiroshima, and that's where he was born. So, in essence, you know, perhaps we could say he was born in somewhat of slavery, so to speak, in quotes, in that sense, where they were working for the Japanese in that during World War II. My mom was born in Northern, Cal uh, Northern California, Northern Korea. And uh, when it was one Korea and during the war, her family was escaping the Northern regime and her father was killed in that. And yet her mom, herself, brother and sister were able to escape. And so that becomes our background. So then growing up, we grew up in uh, kind of a dual religious circle in the sense of uh, worshiping Buddha and, and Shinto. And so we were Buddhist Shinto uh, with the Japanese and Korean culture. And so we grew up, I grew up, you know, going to cemeteries, uh, bowing down to our ancestral spirits, summoning them. And, uh, and, and so I also one guy, Ken, one of the things that we all have in common here is we both love food, you know, Grant, I'm just getting to know you, but you seem like a foodie to me. And, um, and so once a foodie, always a foodie. That's right. <laughs> see, we're family. You pegged, you pegged him. <laughs> yes. Yes. See the prophetics already on. And so, <laughs> um, but you know, they would, they would make these just mass meals and we would take it to the cemetery and, uh, we would, um, Asked the ancestral spirits to come, they would bow down and worship and things like that. And me being a foodie, I guess 
yeah, I didn't know what was going on really. And I would just kind of lean over to the food and just kind of pick and eat it. And uh, and they would have us bow down and summon them. And I just thought it was strange because nothing really took place. Um, and they would say, well, they came and ate, great. And so then we would head back to one of our relatives' houses and have a feast together. And on the way, I would I would be that young man that would always say, who came and ate? No one came and ate. The only person that came and ate was me. And I would just raise these questions. Um, but in that culture, because of the way that my parents were raised, we grew up in a very traumatic uh, difficult home, uh, deep poverty with two immigrant parents uh, from Korea. And so as they were working multi multiple jobs, um, you know, we were dumpster diving for food growing up, um, you know, just in the Bay Area, San Jose, Silicon Valley. I could take you to the exact spots and dumpsters that we went to. Um, and I got into gangs and drugs at a young age. Uh, there was a lot of addictions and violence like that in my in our home growing up. And so I just became angry, got involved with the wrong crowds, got involved with the wrong stuff, uh, started selling drugs at a young age. And I call it kind of doing the stupid stuff. And yeah. my mom was radically saved through, uh, through you know, a season where she had the sickness. Doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. And long story short, she was invited to go to this place called church one night by her friend. And she she went she took myself and my younger brother i'm the eldest of three and there was i've never seen anything like it i, I still remember it there was just people wailing crying laughing and just in this place there was worship as we know it and then the speaker went up and spoke um, and he began moving in words of knowledge and he ca called out this section there's a woman here with this condition and and he just declared healing and in that moment my mom felt the fire of god go through her body and she was immediately healed. The pain left. She gave her life to Jesus that night. And uh, she went up to testify of her salvation along with her, um, along with her uh, healing. And the minister pulled me aside, laid hands on me, prophesied over me. And a life went on. My mom got saved. She started taking us to church, but I came to Jesus through a series of events and I was forced to go to this youth retreat at my eighth grade graduation after I graduated as a gift. And so my mom was saved all year uh, just to send us to youth camp. And so we went and this is where everything changed for me. Went up to uh, Prayer Mountain in Scotts Valley. And, uh, and it was a fasting and prayer retreat for junior hires and youth, three nights, four days. Can you imagine okay. that? <laughs> Ken, let me let me put it in the most theological sense I can. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> it was miserable. And uh, and you know, in the 80s, the Korean church in America experienced a great wave of revival. And uh, and so it was during that period, and the Holy Spirit was just sweeping across uh, the nation. And it was that period. And so we were all fasting in prayer. I mean, if, you, if you're a Korean, you're pre-saved, unsaved, saved, everyone was fasting during that period. And uh, that's what the retreat was about. And long story short, two nights of dreams. I'm starting, you know, those that are there are fasting. And then finally in the afternoon, one of the, on the third day, I went and just talked to Jesus. I said, if you're real, why is this happening to me? 
why, why, why all the abuse, why all this hardship, what, you know, and, and I, and, and I knew the Bible well, because it was a Bible teaching church. And I just began talking to God and genuinely asking if he was real, genuinely seeking after him. And the only way I could describe it is the walls melted like wax. I was in a different place. And a man in a silhouette figure of a light walked up to me, started walking towards me. And I knew that I knew that that was Jesus and Jesus is real. And I was scared to death because I thought Jesus came to kill me. Wow. And, and I thought God is angry at me. He's furious at me. And yet the closer he got, all I could feel is compassion, love. That's all I could feel. And and I just had an encounter with Jesus in that moment. And without going into all the details, my life was completely changed. And I came out of that, ran to my youth pastor. And uh, and he looked at me and he said, you met Jesus. And I said, how, did you, how do you know? And he said, you look different. You're glowing. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and, and I, I felt different. And everything looked different to me. And. It was just a few hours after that where he came, we went to one of those little rooms at the prayer mountain, and there was a young girl there in a wheelchair, paraplegic. And he said, Tony, you had two dreams and you encountered Jesus. And one of the dreams, I saw people walking out of wheelchairs and miracles taking place. And and by the way, ministry was not anything I sought after, even after I got saved. You know, it came chasing me and it haunted me for life. Um but I had those dreams, and he said, Tony, maybe, just maybe, God wants to use you this way. So he taught me how to pray, um, and he just said, put your hand on her. And then he actually, now that we know, he went through the M, um, MC 510 course, and uh, it was during that time. And he taught me, and all of a sudden, after prayer, she stood up and began walking. Wow. And uh, and and that's I already knew Jesus is real, but then I knew that everything I read in the Bible was meant for today, and that began right. My yeah. Journey. Those kind of uh, experiences tend to do that for people. They are paradigm shifting, and although occasionally you'll find people who deny what they experienced because they've chosen to go in a different direction, for most people it like changes the game forever. And it did that for me. And I was I was only 13, 14 years old. I turned 14 during the retreat. And uh and am I grateful? Uh forever grateful. Yeah. Huh. You know, you must have, I'm just thinking about the story of the loss, uh, you know, fleeing. Uh, I guess it must have been of your grandfather, uh, the loss of your grandfather. You weren't alive, mm -hmm. but still the story would have been part of your family lore. And um, what you mentioned about the gang life that you fell into, you must have a very high value for family coming out of all of that. And you must also uh, have a very deep uh, commitment to seeing healthy families in communities and so forth um, as part of keeping them intact and safe, but also places of nurture and where people can grow into healthy, responsible human beings. I don't know what else to call it, but if you've got better language, I'm happy to hear it. I don't know about better language, but you're absolutely right, Ken. Uh, I mean, we've been friends for a number of years and uh, you know, my highest value really is family. 
And I consider myself first and foremost, more than anything, um, a son of God and a family man. And, uh, you know, as I, as I value family because of what I went through, you know, also the greatest attack has been on family for us as well. And we're so, we're so grateful for his grace and his mercy. And, you know, I almost lost my family, you know, along the way, you know, our marriage was close to an end and, and thank God that, you know, he, he intervened and, you know, got me straight. I didn't realize I was living from a place of trauma, going through what I went through growing up and didn't understand that. And I was able to get the deliverance and the healing and the journey. And thank God for my wife, you know, saying, you know what, we're in this together. We're going to walk in this together and, and we're going to set a new course and we're going to set a new precedence for our family, generationally speaking. And so we fought for our family and, uh, and thank God our marriage and family is the best it's ever been. I never knew family could be be this good. And along the way, uh, we've really targeted seeing families healed within our community, within our city, nationally, really in the nations. And, you know, I forget who first said it, but we know the kingdom of God is all about family. Yeah. Yeah. And the kingdom propagates through relationships, including family relationships, which I guess is why we have that famous verse out of Acts 16 uh, verse 31 believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved you and your household and I think some of the people treat that as an automatic like if you believe it's automatic everybody else will too it's more if you if you believe and live it then something will invade your oikos your circle of influence your relationship network including your family one and transformation can happen there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think even in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. I mean, what a powerful statement. And we could unpack that for months and years, perhaps, you know, that statement. But that word build is oikodemeo, where we derive the word oikos. And it's, I really believe that the kingdom begins in family, begins in home. And uh, and we're able to make a small mark in terms of at least the ministry that we feel we're called to, um, not individually, but one of the things that I came to understanding is when it comes to family, number one, ministry isn't what I do to my wife and my family. We are a family and we love one another. And so I have one of these pet peeves, Ken, you know, it's like, no, my ministry is first to my wife. I don't do ministry to my wife. <laughs> it's, you know, she's not this utilitarian, you know. A machine that I just, you know, do something to, you know, it's, it's much more personal. And, um, you know, but one of the things that someone said to me years ago, that I think is just great wisdom is, Tony, because of who you are, you know, uh, you're going to have to put family intentionally at the forefront, but don't ever sacrifice your family for ministry. But together as a family, you will sacrifice for God to do the work of the ministry. Right. Yeah. Very well put. We do. We have that same reality in our life too. So, was that because you were having like a wonderful encounter with God of love, or was it because you were being healed on the inside from some of the scarring? And you know, you mentioned being in gangs and you know, drugs and all all that you'd gotten into um, prior to getting involved with Atrock. Or was it some of both? Or could you even tell? I don't know. Maybe you maybe you didn't know. I mean, at the time, I didn't know what was going on, to be honest with you. Um, 
you know, as an Asian man, we're we're not supposed to be emotional, right? But the only emotion that I had back then was anger and rage. And but during that time, I, I would say both looking back, it's it was the love of God that was healing my heart and my soul and really freeing me up um, and bringing me into a place of where I performed all my life. And for the first time, one one of the f- things that I feel I felt that God spoke to me back then that changed my life in terms of direction was this statement in prayer. Um, and he said, Tony, I want to love you more than I want to use you. Hmm. And, and that statement changed me where I was, I was that young, ambitious, on fire, no wisdom, all zeal guy, you know, just, just loud, obnoxious. I mean, can I, I open our preach in San Francisco on a milk carton daily, you know, at the BART station, I had a new congregation every five to six minutes, you know, that's, that was me. Right. And coming into this space where it was okay to rest. It was okay to just be. And I never experienced that before. That's a really profound statement, I think, um, especially for someone who's coming out of a, shall we say, a high intensity background. But, um, but I think for a lot of people, just the idea of rest is, I don't know, it, it's highly desirable because so many of us feel like we're being pushed all the time. Absolutely. You know, full disclosure, I'm horrible at rest. <laughs> and and to the one that's listening and watching, full disclosure, Ken's horrible at rest too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I get it when I can. How's that? <laughs> you and I both. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's okay. So that's profound. So what other kinds of, I don't know, laughable or um, I don't know, shocking. What other kinds of experiences did you have aside from getting, as we say, wrecked in, uh, in some of those meetings that were going on? You know, one story that comes to mind, I'll, you know, this is, this is interesting. Now, during that time, the whole prophetic was really just pumping, you know, um, a lot of prophets were coming in, speaking and ministering. And, and a lot of people actually moved to Pasadena to be a part of the renewal and the outpouring that was taking place. And so during that time, we would always find, I lived literally across the street from Mon Auditorium. Um, I worked for the U.S. Center for World Mission at the time. Uh, I worked for Dr. Ralph Winter. And, and so, but I would just prayer walk along and just hang out with Lou Engle. And, you know, um, so before Lou was Lou, you know, I knew Lou before Lou was Lou, I guess you could say in that sense. But Lou was always Lou. He's never changed from the day I met him. Right. You know, and that's yeah. one of the, he's just one of the most genuine, authentic people you'll ever meet. The way he speaks in a stadium is the way he spoke to me and another guy in his living room when he was discipling us, you know, he just spit all over us and, you know, and, and we just had some wonderful times together. But I remember one of the times I was just walking around auditorium, and, you know, everyone had name badges during the conferences. And the guy was walking by and my buddy and I were about to go into the building because my friend was the media director at the time doing all the camera work and I was just helping him. And I saw this guy walking by, saw his name badge and I said, hey, how's it going, John? And he stopped and he turned like a burning bush was talking to him. Hmm. And he said, are you one of those prophets? 
And I, and I thought, what's he talking about? Right. I said, dude, what are you talking about? He goes, I just sort of like these prophets in this area that just know people's names and, and could just read their mail. And I said, why, why would you even ask if I was one of those? And he goes, you knew my name. I said, bro, you got a name badge on. And, and so, and so it, it was just funny. He, and he goes, Oh, he, he oh, okay. it, I take it. Or he'd forgotten or something. That must be it. Yeah, I mean, he had a name badge on. I just called him by name, and he forgot he had a name badge on. So he thought I was one of these words of knowledge prophets roaming around, you know. And uh, and we we encountered a lot of stuff like that. It was really interesting. But but the thing is this: the hunger at at that time of just people coming from all over the world just for an encounter with God to hear the voice of God was incredible. Um, another time I remember during service, there's a lady by the name of Bonnie Shafta. <laughs> I remember Bonnie quite well. I <laughs> I still have contact with her. So uh, Mahesh and Bonnie were uh, at, at Mott ministering, and uh, it was Bonnie's turn to minister. And she just came out one day, and she bake some bread and it was these flat bread and she, she was talking about fresh bread and from heaven and things like that and she started ministering and what she started doing was she took the bread and just started whacking people with it you know those in the ministry line just whacking people with the bread and loaf of bread you know with the loaf of bread it was just like a pita bread you know she's whacking people and and i'm watching this going what in the world is going on you know, I thought, this can't be Jesus. There's no way this could be Jesus, right? And at the same time, people are getting healed. They're getting delivered. They're getting freed. They're getting ministered to. And, uh, I mean, it was, let's just say, there's a lot of religiosity that God was breaking through in my life during that time. And uh, I still have it now, but not as strong as it was back then. Hey, Tony, I have to say, the particulars differ, but the same sort of ethos, it reminds me of what it was like in the early vineyard. And um, for anyone who's been up at Bethel, again, different particulars, but same kind of ethos. There is just something about that, I don't know, freewheeling revival culture where everybody is kind of giddy with love and giddy with joy. Uh, there's really nothing like it, is there? No, the freedom. You know, yeah. that people were just moving in. It was, it's, it was incredible. It was incredible. Well, then it'll mark you for life. And it did, obviously, you uh, and Jessica. So um, tell us about that one. How did you, so you met her. Um, you were being checked out by Che and Sue to be sure you were suitable. Um, ultimately, you passed the test. I don't know how, but anyway, it happened. And, <laughs> and, uh, Finally, you uh, you guys moved to Bakersfield. So uh, tell us a little bit about how all that came about. I've I, you've talked to me about this before, but I think it's a, it's so interesting. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear it. Yeah. So my wife and I, when we met, um, you know, she she stalked me for years, and I just had to succumb and just let her marry me. That's how it happened. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, when we met, uh, we knew qu fairly quickly that the Lord put us together. And that word to marry, uh, we just felt that for one another. And, you know, uh, but 
but it was funny because the dynamics between the apostolic and the prophetic looking back now you know lose lose looking at us going get married this is god you know just encouraging us and chase like why don't you wait a year and just see if you like each other after a year you know and so you have that whole prophetic sense and just that you know it was so we we're in that dynamic and um and we knew it was god and yet uh you know what we did was we went through premarital counseling we did what the pastors encouraged us to do uh we listened to wise counsel and we got married uh with everyone's blessing her parents my parents along with our spiritual um you know, mentors, parents, pastors, and and so during that period, I was I was really excited just to plug in. This is the first time I'm part of a charismatic church, a non uh, Asian church, in fact. Um, and so I was just I was really just soaking it all in, learning as much as possible. And then uh, people started sending us dreams and prophetic words about us moving, and I said, "That's not God." And so all the different <laughs> prophetic camps and, you know, all different prophets from a different camp started calling and saying they had dreams of us here. And I'm thinking, that's not God. And so uh, one of my friends who has a, or had a church back then um, had this guy coming through and he said, Tony, why don't you, why don't you come this Sunday night? We have uh, this guy coming through. He's a, he's a prophetic guy out of New Zealand, ministered with uh, Bob Jones and Larry Randolph and all them. And so I went and I saw him and I thought, that's the guy that prophesied that I would move to Southern California. I saw him in the Bay Area. This wasn't so was, Greg Burson, was it? What's that? This wasn't Greg Burson, was it? It was Greg Burson. <laughs> and so um, so he prophesied that God's going to take me to Southern California for me to find my family. And I had no clue on what that meant. I was like, I already have a family, dude. You're crazy. And... So I go, it's Greg Burson. So I was intrigued. And I said, I told my friend, I said, he's the one that prophesied me down here. And so when <laughs> I went, and it was seven days before my wedding, okay, I go to him and I said, Greg, you won't remember me, but you gave me a word when we were in Hayward, California, that God was going to send me to Southern California. And it was at Rodney Ho's church when he was pastoring in Hayward. Okay. And, yeah. And so, and, and then he looks at me and he goes, okay. Now that you're down here, something big is about to happen. I said, oh, I'm getting married next week. And he said, that's not it. And I thought, well, that's pretty big, dude. And, and then he begins to say, the Lord's going to take you an hour and a half north from where, where you are now. You found your family. Now the Lord's going to send you to a land to see a revival. You're going to see miracles, signs, and wonders. And you're going to be used by God. And he just gave me this incredible word. So, Ken, here's what I thought. Santa Barbara, here I come, baby. <laughs> Bakersfield's not exactly Santa Barbara. Listen, I didn't even know Bakersfield it's existed. It's cheaper. <laughs> I didn't even know it existed. So then I meet a pastor from the city called Bakersfield. He invites us up. And so we drive to Bakersfield one weekend just to hang out. Uh, do a little bit of ministry. And my wife looks at me and she says, hey, it took us an hour and a half to get here. I think God's calling us here. I said, woman, I'm the man of the house. You better submit to me, girl. There's no way God's bringing me here. <laughs> and uh, and 
And she said, no, maybe. And then we met with the elders of the church and they said, we're praying you in. And I said, don't do that. And here's the enticement, Ken. This was how they were trying to recruit me. Tony, you should move here. We're about to get our first Starbucks. I thought, wait, what primitive land am I cut? Wait, what primitive land am I in right now? Where are the cape? Wait, what? You don't even have a Starbucks here yet? And long story short, um, my heart was to plant a church in the Bay Area to go back and plant. And so we committed two years to Bakersfield and this church to help build it, to help grow it. And uh, we're still in Bakersfield 23 years later. Just for our listeners who don't know the California uh, landscape very well, uh, Santa Barbara is pretty legendary. It's on the coast. It's, it's uh, iconic for its beauty, mountains, hills, um, classic Southern California architecture. Uh, of course, it's got beaches, great surfing. Uh, UC Santa Barbara is there. Uh, Bakersfield is inland several hours from the coast. And it's uh, hot and dusty, and it used to be an oil center, and there's still some oil activity around there. But um, anyway, it, it's a completely different kind of environment from Santa Barbara, or for that matter, Pasadena, which is pretty a pretty educated place, and I would say relatively affluent. There's pockets that aren't, but but relatively affluent. And so uh, to be sent from Pasadena, thinking you're going to Santa Barbara and end up in Bakersfield is, um, I think this would be comparable to why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it really is the valley floor. It's the wilderness. But you know what? I've come to say the voice cries out from the wilderness, not from yeah. the beaches. Yeah. It's a way to comfort myself. Well, you know, you've had just about every major speaker and leader and prophet and apostle on the planet come through Bakersfield and your church. So there is something that you've built there that um, draws people literally from all over the world. And it's clear that the hand of the Lord's been with you. But um, that doesn't mean it's been an easy ride, especially on the front end. You're a little more settled with it now, but but it's not been an easy ride. No, it's been toughest ride i've been on yeah. um it's it's been it's been quite let's just say more than brutal <laughs> um it I, I have no words for it ken yeah you know just thinking about the journey and yet it's the profoundness of it is i would say it was you know um the dark the dark night of my you know dark night of the soul season um, the Lord asked me if I would stay silent and under the radar for 10 years. Um, and, and so there's this, just this process and sifting that came by God. And at the same time, just experiencing, experiencing a dimension of glory and experiencing a dimension of his presence um, and learning things that I would have probably never otherwise learned. You know, reaching out to the community, how to work with government, how to work with the corporate sector and bring about public, private ventures, including the faith community, to see a level of transformation at a citywide level and uh, and and just navigating through, you know, the keys and strategies of how to bring about tangible change, you know, as as a pastor, as as being part of the community of faith, 
and demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit in a very tangible way in terms of the spiritual dimension, but also on a very natural dimension. And and seeing those two come together. And that really became my platform. And uh, as you know, Ken, with just the national attention, um, some, you know, just na national awards. You know, I don't feel like I deserve any awards or anything, but uh, just the uh, invitations, you know, uh, to the table that I received uh, nationally and globally, really, um, you know, outside of the spiritual church element, but to really see tangible change within blighted, marginalized communities and families. So talk to us about that a little bit more. Um, we've got, you know, maybe 10 minutes left or so, but talk to us a little bit about that kind of change. Uh, what kind of activities did you undertake? And do you think this is something that, well, essentially any church could pick up and begin going after if they wanted to, or is it unique to the Bakersfield context? No, I think principally speaking, every church, every community of faith, every house church, no matter what expression it looks like, can absolutely engage with. Um, we're called to be the church. We are the church together. We're salt and light. And, and we're to be salt and light in our community. And so for me, coming out of poverty, one of the things that I felt that the Lord has put on my life to really go after as an assignment is to break the spirit of poverty. And, and so coming into Bakersfield, even in the height of the economy, having 13% unemployment, and then the surrounding towns being up to 48% unemployment just because of the economic, what drives our economy, which is oil and agriculture. Um, the, third, uh, the third greatest industry in Bakersfield is actually trucking. And so it's very transient in that way. And so looking at all this, um, looking at all this, it's when I moved there, I couldn't just sit and watch. I had to engage. And I've always been one that's pretty aggressive engaging with community anyways. If I saw something, I would just go straight into it. Um, and those of you who know me, you know me in that way. And so I called the mayor's office and I said, hey, I'd like to talk to the mayor. Um, there's some things on my heart. I'm new. I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the church in Bakersfield. I used to say crazy, stupid stuff back then, you know, and I, and I just, and I, um, the receptionist gave me 10 minutes, gave me a 10 minute meeting with the mayor, Mayor Hall. And I just asked him, how can we as a faith community serve you? What's the vision you have for our community? I just moved here three, four months ago. What, what can we do? How can we serve? And he looked at me and he said, I'm not sure I know how to answer that because I've never been asked that question. Wow. And that opened up doors to just, I mean, I never imagined or expected. And he said, well, you know what, let me, let me think about this. And then meanwhile, the Lord began to connect me with not only the pastor that I was with, but other people that are hard for the community. They were more seasoned, they were more experienced. Um, and, and we came together and we just started driving and just entering into this journey. We met with the head of the Department of Human Services. And she said, right now we have 25,000 cases in our county. It's a epidemic. It's a pandemic of single moms on welfare with children recovering from drugs, substance abuse um, that are unemployed with felony records. Wow. I mean, that's every strike against a person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Socially speaking. 
Sure. And, and she said, can you do something about this? We said, absolutely. So we went back and prayed. You know, whenever people say, can you do something about it? Do you have the solution? My answer is always yes. I never say no. And I go back in intercession. That's my cover up for panic prayer. <laughs> um, asking God for the answers. And we felt like God gave us a program and then uh, uh, a mentoring program for us to put together as a pilot. So we, we presented that and the county gave us $10,000 and gave us the 10 hardest families to serve in their caseload. By the end of the year, uh, with, the, um, with the outcomes, with the indicators, benchmarks we set, we had over 80% success with these families. They were blown away with it. And then, and then from there, they said, what can you do with the 100,000? We said, give us 100 families. And then from there, it says, what can you do with 250,000? What can you do with 500,000? And then what can you do with 700? And then at that point, um, we got national attention. I started getting phone calls from universities saying that they're going to send their PhD students to research um, our program. And then meanwhile, I'm getting calls from the different offices of the White House saying, hey, can you come and do present this program to us? And uh, and basically, in that process, we had to mobilize churches together because if we're going to reach a city, it's not one church. It's it's not just an individual church. It's the church of the city has to come together. So 111 senior pastors signed an MOU stating that we will partner and come into unity to do our best to serve and eradicate poverty in our city. We reached out to the business community because in order to change a life, you need they need jobs. So we created a um career development program. And those who went through our program, these businesses, we had 60 something businesses that said, we will put them at the top of our list for interview. Um, if those who go through your program, we had don't recycle, reuse programs saying, if you're going to get rid of your car, donate it to us. We have mechanics ready to fix the cars for us to give to single moms who are getting jobs. So we started putting all these different components in place. We had affordable housing programs where we were purchasing homes for mothers who were getting jobs, who had transportation, who were stabilized to get them into homes. And, and that just grew. And then um, the House of Lords from the UK called and uh, wanted us to help them implement this in the UK and this really opened up the door for transformation. And really, my statement was, in order to see sustained transformation in your community, you cannot do it apart from the community of faith. You have to bring the community of faith into the mainstream of leadership in the community because the church is an untapped resource of human resources um, you know, and every other. And that really exploded and created a whole other platform for me to start working with government and to work with governor's offices to be a bridge um, to between the faith community and the government agencies. You know, the thing that's interesting about hearing you talk this way is, um, you, you know, I've known you for a while and you are, I would say, a substantial and committed charismatic. You are a substantial and committed evangelical. Uh, those aren't always the same thing theologically, but... Right. You are that kind of a person. You're a church planter. Um, as I mentioned at, at the start, you are uh, the number two guy in the HIM movement at this point. And you um, you are doing everything that, this is not necessarily always a favorable term, but people who engage in the kind of things you're describing are often known as social justice warriors. Uh, but they have a particular 
what do I want to say, air about them, a certain kind of a feel, maybe almost a chip on their shoulder at times, or a, I don't know, maybe, it, maybe they are de-emphasizing the gospel in favor of social uh, engagement of some kind. You don't have any of that going on. You are 100% down the middle with the whole, uh, you know, Toronto, charismatic, evangelical Bible, you know, church planning, winning the lost, and yet you're engaging on this level. How do you hold those things in tension? And do you ever find either side taking shots at you because you aren't far enough over on their side of the camp? Absolutely. And the answer is yes to everything you just said. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it was interesting because during my journey, the, the toughest community for me to ever work with was Christians. The business, the government, the social, the uh, NGO world, they all embraced me. But it was the Christians. They would tell me, you're a sellout. I mean, it was, it was a real interesting journey. And yet in that, one of the things that I say, Ken, is this. We have to go. They say, you do a lot of humanitarian work socially, Tony. I said, I don't do anything humanitarian. I tell them, I do pneumatarian. I like that. You know, and so I, when I do trainings on this, I tell people we have to shift from this humanitarian, this whole work based on humanism into pneumatarian, where it's based upon the work of the spirit. And, and so with this understanding what true justice, people say social justice, but even that terminology, I don't like either. I have to call it kingdom justice. And we have to understand what kingdom justice is. It's not punishing one and restoring the other. True justice from the kingdom is restoring all. And, and really, to understand this, the reason why I believe we fall into, as Christians, into the social justice world with the chip on our shoulder and all these things is because we've lost the essence of biblical truth. And we lost the essence of biblical worldview. And so I go back to St. Gregory of Nyssa, the first abolitionist in the early church. In order for us to understand true justice, we have to go back to our patriarchs and orthodoxy to understand what the Bible truly has to say. And so to me, it's a, it's a spirit work. It's a work that comes out from eternal truth. It's the word of God. And, and we have to come from a place of healing, not from a place of pain. And so for me, it's a lot of those people with the chip on their shoulders. I still see them moving from a place of pain where I've, thank God, been healed to a, a certain dimension where I'm actually learning to move from his presence. And so I would say those are some dynamics and, uh, you know, just dichotomies that I find myself operating in quite often. Right. It's interesting, too, that the outside world can see it and they embrace it, and it seems to lack a lot of the, uh, I don't know what you, what you want to say, but uh, the triumphalism or doctrinaire mm -hmm. uh, behavior that is sometimes attributed to the Christian church. Um, there is a lot to be said for leadership through service without losing the heart of the evangelistic mandate, the spiritual mandate, the whole thing. And it's one of the things I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because probably more than anybody I know, you embody that that mixture, that appropriate blend or fusion, if you want to use that term, um, that it seems so elusive, but maybe it's not as elusive as elusive as we think. 
if we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, people ask me, there's, there's so much need out there. How do I engage? What do I start with? And I tell them, start with where your greatest frustration is. And when we allow our frustration to serve us and not rule us, that'll actually cause us to press in for solutions for that one thing. And people ask me often, uh, you know, you received the award from the White House, from the president's office, and how how have you done this? How, and and for me, it's I never sought after recognition, but we need to be known for our fruit. Yeah. And when we have fruit, it's undeniable. No one can debate it. That's why I could work with Republicans. That's why I could work with Democrats because the fruit is there. They can't deny it. Yeah. And and so if we become a people of the kingdom to produce good fruit, the world is going to come running to us because now we're operating as light. Light attracts, but as salt, salt penetrates. And so we need to get out into the community and penetrate into these places to bring the goodness of God. And Ken, to me, it's really simple. Uh, I love the harvest. You know, I'm about to harvest evangelism souls. And through our program, as people would say, that's very unspiritual we saw hundreds of entire families get saved and plugged into churches Amazing. where they're baptized and, and discipled because we're able to love them in life. And right. we serve a God of all the life. Great word. John Wimber used to hold those same exact values. He said it a little bit differently. And, you know, 40 years ago, uh, the language was a bit different too, but, but the idea was identical. And so, um, you know, that, that has a deep resonance. Uh, for me. Um, well, we're about out of time, but I want to ask you a couple last questions. So you passed your church, you're now the uh, vice president of Harvest International mm -hmm. Ministries. How is your perspective on church leadership uh, narrowly and maybe global Christianity broadly? How has that changed due to this newer role? I'm sure it's been a broadening experience and given you some insights you didn't have previously. You know, Ken, I would say uh, yes and no in the sense that, um, you know, me stepping into this VP role with HM, first of all, it's it's a great honor to serve the body of Christ and especially this movement that way, our global family. Um, and yet at the same time, I think I've been operating in it already, um, functionally speaking. Um, but, you know, globally speaking, as, as I've been just in Africa and Asia and um, over the last couple of months, uh, North America, throughout the U.S., um, you know, I'm encouraged. And I'm encouraged by the fact to say there is a new paradigm shift taking place. And I think, especially through the COVID the last few years, we realized how insignificant the church has been. When we have to fight for our own essentiality, that tells us something. Mm. It should be the world crying out that we should keep our doors open, not us saying we're important and tooting our own horn. And yet it's important that we do stand up <clears throat> for who we are. Um, but I think there's a lot of shifting and changing going happening where pastors who were pastoring realized they were professional pastors by vocation, but not by call. And, and we're, seeing, we're seeing this perhaps transition period taking place right now, yeah. where, where God's shaking everything, and he's shaking things into order. 
Yeah. And uh, and I think unless the church steps out of the four walls and actually begins to build the kingdom and understands not from the definition of King Henry VIII, but the original definition of we are the church, um, we're going to lose the world. But uh, but I, I I think, you know, that I value the local church. We need to equip our people. We need to equip them, empower them, but we also have to emancipate them and let them free, not to just build our own ministry, but to build cities and nations, which is really the ultimate goal. The finish line is to disciple nations, and we need to disciple people to disciple nations. Couldn't agree more, and of course, you're in the perfect role for that because that's one of the uh, parts of the motto for the HIM movement. Not everybody right. would know that, but... Um, so you're all about doing that, and it's not just a slogan. You're actually in the process of doing it uh, locally in Bakersfield, and of course now you have a, a bigger platform from which to operate. So you're doing that uh, much further afield, even than Bakersfield. So um, you know, all I want to do is just stand up and say, "Yay, Tony Kim, just keep on going." Um, so let's wrap it up with just a one last question. Well, it has a couple parts to it, but. What are your top maybe two or three concerns as you survey the global church? And also what are your two or three greatest points of hope? You've, you've already kind of pointed towards that a bit. You might want to unpack it a tiny bit more. And then uh, in line with all of that, if you could make just one single change in the global church, what would that change be? Thanks for these uh, simple questions uh, as we conclude. And you gave me like 45 seconds to answer all of them. Um, I appreciate that, Ken. You always make my life easier. Yeah, 15 That's what I love about you. Seconds. You've got big shoes, man. You're going to do great. <laughs> okay, I'm going to streamline. My greatest concern and my greatest hope are the same thing, actually. Okay. My greatest concern is the dichotomy between the generations. Where God is the God of generations. And we're seeing generations operate separately from one another. And we're seeing a division. My greatest encouragement is I see the generations coming together. Mm. I, I see the boomers and the Xers and the millennials really coming together. And even, even more specifically, as I've been traveling, there's been this, this, this cry from the generation X that they're coming out of hiding. And, and so I feel like the family of God is coming back into right order with the kingdom with the God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are coming together. I see the boomers and the Xers and the millennials coming together to see the rise of Gen Z and alpha. And one of the greatest things that I'm seeing everywhere I go, um, I just came back from new Orleans um, yesterday, two days ago. And I could tell you there is a young generation crying out to God, hungry, desperate that's capturing heaven's intention and 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 i see i see the generations again coming together in that and uh it's and this cry is beyond just one generation but we're sparking one another in that and we're championing one another and so i just see this family that god's bringing together where we've been disordered you know it was out of we were not aligned rightly and he's bringing things back into order. And I believe that we're going to see a move of God uh, unprecedented. And those who've been prophesying the prophetic words that have been spoken, I believe we're going to see it. And one of the statements that was profound just when I was ministering over the last couple of days, Ken, was this. People said, 
we haven't seen the demonstration of a kingdom like this in over 20 years. Yeah. And this is in America. Yeah. Deaf ears opening, the cripple walking, and, and we're we're at the precipice of a move of God. And I'm excited to be alive today. Yeah. Amen. I am too. And I've been talking about this dramatic increase that's happened really since February. I've been saying everywhere, it was a line of demarcation on multiple levels. I've got uh, a message out on this, but uh, this is really, it's an unprecedented time to be alive. And, you know, in his own wisdom and divine sovereignty, our father decided that guys like you, Grant, and I get to live now and participate in this. So there's never been a better time to put your hand to the plow fully and not look back. Absolutely. And it's an honor to run with you guys. And I'm looking forward to more good times with Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Well, Tony, it's been great. Um, we're going to, we're going to stop here because we've uh, actually run slightly over, but it took a lot to get you on the show. It was totally worth the wait. And uh, we'll have you back again uh, as soon as we can arrange that. It might be another six or eight months at the rate we go. But anyway, thank you so much for sharing um, an hour of your time with us this afternoon and uh, joining us on God is Not a Theory. Hey, listen, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your patience. And uh, one thing I love about you, Ken, is just your love for the Lord. Um, you're, you're more on fire today than when I first met you, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, just your heart of a father, um, your love for the kingdom, your love for the world. Um, you you challenge me, and uh, I just want to say thank you for who you are. You're a gift. Well, thanks. You are too. So the feelings mutual. Listen, as we go, why don't you uh, why don't you say a prayer for us and pray us on out, and we'll close it up with that. Absolutely, Lord, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you that just even through media, we could connect with our family all over the world. And Lord, I thank you for God is not a theory, Lord. And Father, we thank you for the demonstration that you want to release through every one of us, acts of love, kindness, Lord, the fruit of the Spirit. And so, Father, I pray for every person uh, that's watching, <clears throat> every person that's listening, God, that this year would be a great year of fruitfulness. God, that barrenness would be broken and the year of fruit, fruitfulness would manifest. God, and I pray a blessing, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would, um, as the God of Psalm 67, 1, be gracious to us and let the light of your face shine down on us and let your ways may be known on the earth, that the peoples would praise you, that the nations would praise you. God, teach us your ways that we would walk in the truth. And I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, that we would know you more, Jesus. And in that, that we would demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit in our family to our neighbors, in our workplace, in every sphere and metron that you put us in for your glory. So, Lord, I pray a blessing over my family here, my kingdom family, for your glory, Jesus, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Tony, it's great having you on the show. Grant, you got any final comments? I could ask questions for the next 45 minutes or so, but I'm just going to, I think we should just wrap it up and hopefully get Tony back on here uh, again real soon. So here's what your, here's your assignment, Grant. Write the questions down so we don't lose them. 
and I'll sick Janice on Tony's assistant. And somewhere down the road here and not too far in the future, we'll, we'll have him back. I love it. I'm excited. Well, thank you both for taking time uh, to, to join us today. And thank you all for listening to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. The Fusion Conference is fast approaching. We would love to have you attend the event in Nashville with us. If you're interested in registering for the Fusion Conference, you can click on the link in the description of this podcast and register today.